Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, the Fulton County Commission could not really agree whether or not to approve the firing of Elections Director Richard Barron. I had been a cheerleader for what Barron had done. From the beginnings of 2020 through January 5th. I expressed my opinion to the members of the boards of elections back in June in a formal letter stating that I felt like they needed to consider personnel decisions. Well, today, Fulton County Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman will join me. I'll see where she stands on this. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, this Walgreens will now offer COVID-19 vaccine appointments right here in Georgia. Doses will be available at some of the store locations. Now, Walgreens joins a growing list of locations eligible Georgians can go to get vaccinated. Now, there are some Kroger and Walmart, Publix, Ingalls, and CVS locations that also offer vaccination appointments, and all this information can be found on the Georgia Department of Public Health website. Now, still, while more Georgians are being vaccinated, the number of COVID-19 cases, deaths, and hospitalizations, well, they're actually trending upward. Yesterday, more than 2,300 new cases were recorded, bringing the total number to 808,000 416 Georgians who have contracted the virus since last March. And in total, 14,761 Georgians have died due to the virus. And and since last year as well, we have just over 55,000 Georgians that have been hospitalized. And again, as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, in related news, the Cab County School District will give students the option to resume in-person learning starting March 9th. So pay attention because the district is phasing in students by grade levels. So pre-K, the little bitty ones, through second grade, plus sixth and ninth graders. Again, they'll start on March 9th. Students in all the other grades may return starting on March 15th. Now, according to the district, they are taking steps to ensure safety, which includes following social distancing guidelines, facilitating testing and contract tracing, as well as organizing classes into what they call smaller cohorts of students to minimize transmission risk. And finally, guess who's going to be this year's commencement speaker for Emory University's College of Arts and Sciences? No, it's not me. So really, guess. All right, here's a hint. Dear members of the Emory community, I just wanted to say how honored I am to serve as this year's speaker for the Emory College of Arts and Sciences commencement ceremony. That's right. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, expert, will also receive the Emory University's President's Medal. And of course, due to the pandemic, Dr. Fauci's commencement address will be virtual. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A week ago, it was unclear if Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron still had a job. First, the County Elections Board voted to terminate Barron, citing a time for new leadership and also to make the county's election system more accurate, cost-effective, and efficient. Now, that was what Dr. Kathleen Roof said during the meeting. But the Fulton County Commission could not agree by vote to approve Barron's firing. And next week, all of this could change again. How? Well, I'll ask Fulton County Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman. She joins me now. She represents District 6. Commissioner, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you. How are you doing this afternoon? You know, every day that I'm alive is a great day. So I look at it. I know. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin. Appreciate here. you having me. I appreciate you all taking the time. Let's begin here. Your vote was not in favor of the election board's vote to terminate Director Richard Barron. Why? 
Well, it's, it's, it's a couple of things that I take issue with. One, uh, the elections ran smoothly in uh, November and January. We had unprecedented uh, 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 participation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the numbers showed that the citizens of Georgia, especially Fulton County, were engaged. Um, also, we had no fraud. The Secretary of State himself, a Republican, uh, said it was the safest election ever. And uh, Barron had been given a pay raise in the last 12 months. Now, I have been, I had been very vocal, okay, in, in uh, June. Mm -hmm. And I actually had some conversations. A lot of the community had conversations with Barron. Um, he did a turnabout. Uh, part of what he did was secured almost $11 million in grants to make sure that we had ample mobile voting, extended voting, uh, drop boxes. I believe Fulton County had somewhere in the area of 34 to 37 drop boxes. And so one, it gave me pause that all of a sudden, you know, he's the problem. He has to go. But what was even more of an issue for me, mm -hmm. a person out of the uh, Secretary of State's office had been handpicked, a Republican. They had already offered the job to him, and he accepted upon um, the departure of Barron. So this was a voter suppression tactic. This was a coup. So um, I don't I don't see any other way to to say uh, this is other than voter suppression at the county level. So let's back up. You believe that there was, or there, I won't say the process already started, but you're saying that there was someone else already selected. Is this Mr. Blake Evans? Yes, yes. How can you Mr. Blake Evans was validate that? Well, I put it like this, uh, confidential conversations. You know, I am a Democrat, but I'm a Democrat with a lot of Republican friends that we don't always see on the same page, but a lot of times the ultimate goal is the same. And so a lot of um, people had expressed to me, now mind you, I didn't know the depth of this until I started investigating. And then to have a person that was in the wings waiting for the job, the uh, person that was the, the Republican person that was the person that was uh, looking over the election, the monitor, mm -hmm. the monitor that had been assigned, uh, independent, happened to be a Republican. He said in his report that the problems that Fulton County had were not at the hands of Richard Barron. He stated that in his report. And so the problem I had was I saw this as a coup. I saw this as an intentional uh, uh, positioning of someone who had already allegedly, to my knowledge, had already said he was going to do away with Sunday voting. He was going to do away with extended hours voting. And he was going to do away with the mobile units. And he being, and I want to be so, clear, Commissioner, he being Blake Evans. Oh, I'm sorry, Blake, the person that they wanted okay. to uh, place in there out of the Secretary of State's office. And so I don't have a problem uh, with Richard Barron. And even more, I don't have a problem with him being replaced if indeed he needs to be. Mm -hmm. But the process needs to be open. It needs to be democratic in that we are able to vet or see the uh, fair vetting of someone that's going to be independent. Now, last week on the program, fellow Commissioner Bob Ellis said the commission should not be involved in this matter regarding Barron. Take a listen to this. So why at this point in time, uh, our board is weighing in on this at all. Uh, certainly every individual on this board or every elected official is entitled to their opinion and their viewpoints around stuff. But from a decisional standpoint related to the continued employment of Mr. Barron, I believe this power solely rests with the Board of Elections. Commissioner, your response to that? Well, I, I take issue with that for two reasons. The very first reason is we provide the budget. Um, I can I can tell you, but I think I put it in layman's term. If if you're gonna take my money, you got to take my advice. Okay, and so my father used to say that. The, 
Exactly. So you old school, you know, you know how you used to get money from your parents and they said, OK, I'm going to give you this. But let me tell you. And they would tell you, OK, if you're going to I'm not saying money, I agree with advice. it. I'm not saying I agree with it. I just said that's what my father used to say. Go ahead. Commissioner. Exactly. Continue. Exactly. So just putting it in layman's terms, but just to, to just kind of pinpoint it better for you. It's a two step process. We appoint them. OK. And so upon the uh, recommendation we have to go through the process to, uh, of appointing them. And so it's a two-step unraveling. If there's a recommendation for termination, we, we are that second process. And so the county attorney did render an opinion on this. And so with all due respect to Commissioner Ellis, he has it wrong because we provide the budget. And so our final say-so has to be uh, a part of the process. Now... Commissioner Ellis did admit op opinions should matter. Take a listen to this. I expressed my opinion to the members of the boards of elections back in June in a formal letter stating that I felt like they needed to consider personnel decisions. That, that was an opinion. I rendered that opinion to them and I asked them to deliberate over that. Mm -hmm. I think all of us as board of, board of commissioners and other elected officials have that right and should voice that, but it's not our role uh, and we are overstepping our authority mm -hmm. when we get into the arena of um, making a decision to continue the said person's employment or terminate his employment. So you both agree your opinions matter. You just disagree in terms of to what extent and in the influence it should have on the Fulton County Elections Board in there. And this is a personnel matter for them. Do you all render opinions on other county directors in, in, in other areas? Well, basically the law says the board of commissioner decides. And so we have to follow the law. Yes, opinions do matter, but we have to follow the law. What your public doesn't understand, unilaterally, we cannot fire. If for some reason that the uh, BRE, the board of registration and election says, uh, we want to keep him. We can't go in there and say, Oh, we want to fire. You know, we, 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 we can't unilaterally just wake up one day and decide without the Board of Registration of Elections uh, zoning in on it. And so that's I think there's there's a misconception uh, or maybe a misrepresentation of what our role is. The law is very clear on what our role is. Now, if you don't think that should be our role, then you should change the law. From the County Elections Board, Dr. Kathleen Ruth, in that meeting where the vote was to fire Richard Byrne, she said that this is not political. Uh, and I've asked everyone, including Commissioner Ellis, Chairman Pitts, is this political? And I'll ask you the same thing. It's very political. I mean, um, not based on Ms. the, the Mr. His job Barron performance. His I'm sorry. Repeat that for me. So. You're saying this is not, through your lens, this is not based on his job performance. This is all about politics and then the desire no, to have it's a... No, it's not based... Okay, go ahead. I'll let you finish. No, it's not based on his job performance. And I went out my way to make sure that I found out information. And he got for 20, if I'm not mistaken, his 2020 and 2019 uh, performance review and 2018 performance review were practically perfect. Uh, 2017 was when he had a failing mark. And so I would just say for one moment, if the listeners would think about it, I'm at work three years ago. I may not have been doing well, but I did well recently. And so are you going to go back to 2017 and say, well, you're doing good now, but you didn't do well in 2017. So I'd like to terminate you. This is very political. This is voter suppression at its worst, it's, it's written all over it. Have you had a chance to speak with anyone on the elections board? I have not had the chance to speak to anyone except for one person, and that was Aaron Johnson. I wanted to talk to Vernita Keith Nuruddin mm -hmm. to find out what was her reasoning to voting with the Republicans. 
and I have yet to get a response from her. She emailed a response to all the commissioners after I was very loud and vocal that I thought this was political. And in her email, she stated, oh, it's not fraud. I didn't say it was fraud. I said it was performance. Well, technically you didn't say any of that. You let someone else say that narrative and they rolled in on it. So now she is saying, oh, no, this was strictly performance. There was no fraud. Commissioner, there's another meeting scheduled, I believe, next week. Uh, correct. How will or should all of this be resolved? I, it is my hopes that it will be resolved and put to bed that uh, 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 Richard Barron will keep his job. Um, here again, uh, I think the process of trying to do it, I don't have a problem right now. The fact that we have uh, a city election coming up shortly, and I think it's going to throw it in a tailspin. And I'll go on record and tell you that that may be a reason why this is done as well. Voter suppression does not just decided it wants to be at the state level, it would be at the county and the municipal level as well. So I think it's more important given what his track record was with the January and the November that we keep him in place, especially with the municipal elections coming up. And then if we want to revisit this, I'll be more than happy to revisit it. As we wrap up with all of this, and then you all are still dealing with COVID-19 and trying to ensure your county residents that they have what they need, how you're all able to function as a, a, a body that's getting along with all this other tension going on? Well, um, as far as I'm concerned, we're, we're getting along. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, my constituents sent me to do a job. And my job is to make sure that they are not uh, disenfranchised, and they have equal footing as of all of Fulton County. And so sometimes when I'm very vocal about that, it can be misinterpreted as not trying to get along. But I am trying to get along, I think, because we're doing the Zoom. Eventually, I will be glad when we get back into Assembly Hall, because I think the voters of Fulton County will have a greater opportunity to come face to face with the people who are making the decisions that affect their lives daily. So in other words, stay tuned, depending on what happens next week, Commissioner. Please stay tuned, but more importantly, stay engaged, please. Fulton County Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, our listeners are very concerned about this, and we're getting all the sides, so we appreciate you taking the time as well as Commissioner Ellis last week. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The city of Elberton, Georgia, sits on the far northeastern corner of the state in Elbert County. It has a fascinating history. I encourage you all to check it out. I had a lot of fun reading about it. It's a rural community bordering South Carolina. And this little small community made national headlines in January when a local medical center was suspended and barred from receiving vaccine shipments and then administering vaccinations. And a statement, officials with the Georgia Department of Public Health said they took action, quote, 
after learning the provider had been vaccinating individuals in the Elbert County School District who are outside of the current Phase 1A plus eligible population, close quote. Now, originally, the suspension was set to last for six months until July 27th of this year. But this week, there were some changes to that suspension, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But joining me now for an update is Dr. Jonathan Poon. He's a physician at the Medical Center of Elberton. Dr. Poon, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. I really enjoy being here. How long have you been a physician? Uh, I've been back home in Elberton for about 14 years now. Let's give some history here. The Medical Center of Elberton, I understand this is uh, has some family uh, origin, correct? Well, that's right. My, my father came here uh, back in the, the late 70s, and so this was his uh, one of his first uh, jobs, and he's been here ever since. And so I was uh, just about you know born and raised here by a few months, uh, missing it. And I've been, uh, after I finished uh, school, I decided I want to return home and practice. Yeah. And roughly how many patients do you all serve on an annual basis? Well, the county is about 20,000, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we probably see a good majority of those. Um, but we're seeing anywhere from about you know, three to 4,000 uh, patients a month. So we're, we're pretty busy. Yeah. Um, Dr. Poon, uh, do many of the folks you all provide medical services for, do they have, through your lens, do they have adequate health care in general, you believe? You know, it's being in a rural area that certainly limits a lot of options. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the closest kind of referral center is going to be about an hour away, uh, east to west. And so uh, we do have to provide a lot of services kind of here for them. Um, but, you know, as far as specialty care and access to them, it's a little, little hard to get. And uh, we do have a, a, a community hospital here, El Memorial Hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, we do have admitting privileges. Uh, but certainly it lacks a lot of the kind of uh, you know, larger procedural care that can be found at uh, some of the bigger cities. And I know it's not lost on you because the plight of rural hospitals and clinics and other health and, and wellness being centers uh, in the rural population the last 10, the last decade, maybe even beyond. I mean, that has been the focus of legislation, not just here in Georgia, but also in Washington. Um, how do you assess just in general the plight of rural hospitals and clinics right now we heard it was at a at a critical level i think it always is it always has been you know uh, rural health care is, is always just on the brink of uh, collapse it seems i mean every year you're kind of trying to make ends meet uh, a lot of times uh, we've been very fortunate with our hospital here and the new leadership that they've uh, really been able to turn things around but uh, for several years i mean things were always just a, a few days away from some type of calamity Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it continues to be a, a pressing need. I hope that our, our leaders in, in the state and, and federal level uh, continue to see that, uh, that we need help uh, because uh, a lot of our patients just don't have the, you know, just financial means or just even ability to, to travel to these other places to get care. And so we have to do as much as we can here locally with what we have. And is there within the county there, is there a trauma? Is there a trauma center? One of the facilities listed as a, a trauma center? I know we have trauma one, different levels, but do you all have that out up there? That's right. Yeah. Our hospital, our, we do have a, a basic ER, but as far as a, a trauma center, the closest one is going to be in Athens, which is about an hour away. Uh, so any of those uh, things have to be uh, taken there, or you know, certainly we have had to you know, life flight you know, people by helicopter to places like Greenville. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're certainly not uh, right next door uh, to a trauma center when, when things happen. Dr. Poon, I looked up the COVID-19 data for Elbert County and just over 1,400 confirmed cases. But I'm curious, do you know the breakdown in terms of demographics of those who have contracted the virus? Are you seeing any particular trend there, whether it's by race or, or sex or, or even age group? I know that uh, you know, there, there's certainly uh, some, some experts that know more. As far as what we see, I think it's, it's a very equal um, numbers. And I think uh, as far as you know, black and white, I think they're all still contracting it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the complication rates um, uh, are, are probably more in Elberton because we do have more complicated patients. Our, our patients are older. Mm-hmm. They have more health issues as far as things like diabetes and, and uh, the obesity, the heart disease is, is pretty prevalent here. So uh, we see a lot of those uh, kind of things happening in front of our own eyes. You all have had 46 confirmed deaths and about 13 probable deaths. And so on January 27th of this year, when the Department of Public Health notified the center of a suspension from the COVID-19 vaccination program in Georgia, were you? did you immediately know, okay, I, I, I know what this is about? Uh, you know, the only inkling we had was early that in the week they had called and, and asked if we had vaccinated teachers. And even up to the point uh, that we were suspended, uh, we really didn't think that we were outside the bounds. We knew that, uh, you know, of course, that the, there was a 
um, you know, pushed for the 1A plus for the, the seniors. Um, but at that time, you know, we, we had felt that we had actually, you know, finished uh, vaccinating the, the 1A. And, and before we had uh, started uh, uh, hearing about the 1A plus, we'd actually started vaccinating the teachers as well as the essential workers in our county. And uh, that was you know, part of a, a plan that we had you know, been in, in close contact with uh, our county officials about, you know, with, with state guidance at the time, it was, it was trying to develop that, that high um, priority access for our essential workers to, to get them vaccinated soon. And it wasn't until later until we you know, learned that they intended for it to be only be the, the 1A plus of the seniors uh, that uh, we had you know, stopped you know, vaccinating. By then we had already vaccinated you know, quite a few, you know, obviously. Um, but you know, we certainly didn't know that it was gonna be this type of um, uh, response from the state to, to cut us off completely. Um, we certainly didn't do it intentionally and we did it you know, with, with full uh, intent of, of trying to vaccinate like we were uh, planning to do for the, the entire county as a whole. And so it wasn't anything that was a deliberate attempt to circumvent the rules. Uh, we had a, just a, a, a misunderstanding about the rules and uh, so I didn't know anything about the, the consequences the way that they were laid out to us. And so to be clear, you all figured you, you'd already vaccinated all those who were eligible, eligible in that phase 1A group. And so you moved to the educators. Is that what you're mm-hmm. saying? That's correct. Yeah. And when you told this to the state Department of Public Health, the response? Well, you know, I think uh, the, the, the suspension came immediately. We really didn't get a chance to ex- explain why we had uh, vaccinated teachers. I think that's why we were so really upset is that uh, as soon as they learned we had vaccinated teachers within 48 hours, the suspension had already come down. And so it wasn't really a, a, a chance to explain that we had did that as part of the, the a broad effort and working with the county officials to do this. And so uh, I think that's that's what really you know, drove a, a lot of our just surprise and, and anger about that because we, mm-hmm. we didn't feel like we had a chance to explain why we did it. And it was just kind of um, kind of um, broadcast to the world that we had done this kind of intentionally with, with disregard to the, the, the situation. I mean, we sort of knew that this, this is a, a valuable vaccine. Um, we, we just believed at the time that we um, planned this with the guidelines in place that we were actually following you know, what the state wants to do. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Poon. He's a physician at the Medical Center of Elberton, and we're talking about why the center is currently suspended by the Georgia Department of Public Health from giving the COVID-19 vaccine. And then also now, you all did appeal the decision, correct? We did. You know, we, we appealed it initially right away, um, at, at, uh, the same day we learned about the suspension, and uh, we did get a, a denial on that uh, attempt. Um, and we did submit a second appeal. And uh, I mean, as an update, uh, some of the listeners may know that we did get uh, a uh, decision to allow us to vaccinate a little bit sooner. You know, mm-hmm. So we will be able to kind of start vaccinating in mid-March and rather than uh, six months later. We'll talk about that in a moment because I want to be clear for our listeners. We should note there are other medical facilities in Elbert County that can administer COVID-19 vaccinations. This It wasn't like that with you all being suspended that no one will be able to get a vaccination, correct? That's right. And the, the state has a, a stepped up efforts to expand the access. Uh, we were the primary vaccinating uh, facility in the county. Um, after our suspension, they did start to ramp up efforts to include uh, some other uh, pharmacies that weren't able to do it first, and then also to expand the hours uh, available at the uh, local health center. Dr. Poon, are you all still approved to administer the second doses of the vaccine, if you had already given the mm-hmm. first one prior to the suspension, are y'all That's allowed right. to do that? That was, that was part of the, the agreement of, of the initial suspension was that we were only allowed to give the second dose. So any any uh, new vaccinations, of course, we, we had to stop, but we were allowed to keep enough vaccines on hand uh, to vaccinate um, any remainders uh, from that first wave. Well, I'm also curious because when the suspension came down, how much of the vaccine did you have stored? And was there a chance that, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, it could expire? What happened to those doses? Right. So th- those doses were uh, taken back from the state uh, a week after our suspension. The very next week, they came in and seized those vaccines and took them back to uh, the... Uh, seized? Uh, what did they have? Armored guards? <laughs> Like it, was, it was a very unannounced uh, uh, presence of, of their team, and it really was. It was just kind of a, a, a situation that was just out of a out of a, a movie, it seemed, and, and it was almost like a, a search and seizure. But you know, they took them back to Athens, and I believe from there they were redistributing them 
because the, the expiration date was going to be uh, sometime in March uh, of the mm-hmm. initial batch of Pfizer vaccines we had. Well, speaking of March, and you mentioned, so Dr. Poon, I believe it's March 14th, the center can return to administering the first and second doses of, I believe, Pfizer and then Moderna, you all a program provider. Um, but y'all will be on probation. Um, and then you could be subject to a corrective action plan. What do you make of that? It's like being in high school, getting in trouble with not yeah. turning your English paper. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I obviously, uh, there, there are a lot of uh, things that we're going to have to be very careful about, you know, dotting our I's and cross our T's at this point. Um, I think it's, it's still something that, that um, you know, we, we feel that, you know, these, these actions that we took uh, were never something that was supposed to be a slap in the face of the state. And mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like, you know, that was something we wanted to really impress upon them. Um, these things that we have to kind of follow now, uh, obviously still feel like they, they, you know, feel that way that we have to kind of, you know, be, you know, kind of watch closely. And we understand, I mean, uh, you know, obviously we're getting a second chance here, mm-hmm. um, but we do hope that they understand that we've been a, a very faithful vaccine provider for, for many, many, many years here. We provided uh, vaccines for children uh, for decades and we've never had any kind of transgression as far as uh, what we've done. And it was only in this, this new time of this brand new uh, coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic with a new vaccination program that we were just you know, unclear about things. And so I think that was something that you know, we wish we was a little understanding that you know, this was the first time for all of us. And so, you know, knowing that these guidelines were in place for the first first time, I think we, sh- we should get a little bit of leniency to try to understand what's, what's happening here. And I think communication is key for that. Dr. Poon, how would you assess the, in terms of folks coming in who are eligible coming in and getting the vaccine? Are there some concerns about risk? Are you all helping in, in getting the word out and almost being, a, you know, obviously campaigning for folks to get vaccinated? Uh, tell us about what's taking place in the county there. Yeah, you know, our uh, one of our local doctors, uh, Dr. McElroy, was the uh, very first one to get vaccinated here, and uh, he was uh, the poster child for us to try to, you know, get the word out. Um, it being a new vaccine, I think uh, there is still a lot of skepticism uh, here in our town, and so we're still uh, meeting people every day that are uh, deciding to to wait and uh, you know, kind of see how things play out. We're trying to encourage them and try, just trying to give them. Uh, the facts available about the, the vaccine. Um, you know, all the providers now have been vaccinated. So mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to kind of uh, demonstrate through our actions that we, we trust this vaccine and we believe it's a very important thing um, because I think uh, for a lot of folks, uh, they're willing to take a chance. But, you know, uh, I think without a vaccine, we, we're probably looking at, you know, just about everybody eventually coming down with this infection. And so we certainly don't want to take a chance with the complications that can arise with it. You all, have you all had any identifiable clusters or areas where there might have been a, an outbreak? Um, yeah, not so much uh, you know, as far as our, our ability to kind of track down the, these clusters. Not as much, um, you know, we certainly are seeing, you know, like family groups uh, that have come in. Uh, so being a, a small town, we do get the luxury of kind of, you know, following um, the, the same people and their families. And so we certainly can't see that type of trend where um, you'll see one and then the next day you'll see the other and, then, and then so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, it is it's a, uh, a small community. And so, you know, we, we hear about it and I think everybody's, going to run to everybody eventually because, you know, we, we all intermingle in the same locations. Mm-hmm. We shop in the same stores. We go to the same, you know, barbers and salons. And so the chances are always there for us to kind of, you know, spread these things inadvertently. Well, Dr. Jonathan Poon is a physician at the Medical Center of Elberton. And we've been talking about when the center will resume to provide vaccinations for the community. Dr. Poon, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care now. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 34 of America's largest cities saw an increase in homicides, 30% higher 
Yes, this happened in the year 2020 last year. This is according to a new report from the Council on Criminal Criminal Justice. Atlanta was included among those cities. In fact, in December, by that time of last year, the city saw its 155th homicide and the shooting death of a seven-year-old girl, Kennedy Maxey, near Phipps Plaza. Now, the survey also reported robberies, residential burglaries, and motor vehicle thefts also were on the rise in many of the cities and this city. And it notes the pandemic has, quote, placed individuals and institutions under tremendous strain and that the pandemic has also impeded outreach to at-risk individuals, a key component of most evidence-informed and anti-violence strategies. And citing rising crime rates, uh, several local organizations in the Buckhead neighborhood have come together because they want a solution. The outcome, the Buckhead Security Plan. And joining me now to share some of the details is Jim Durrett. He's president of the Buckhead Coalition. Mr. Durrett, thank you for taking the time. I believe this is our first conversation. Believe it is, Rose, if I may call you Rose. Oh, you can. You can call me Rose. Let's begin here because you heard the statistics coming into this segment. Um, your Through your lens, overall crime in the city of Atlanta and the spike that occurred last year, what do you make of that? And, and do you also agree that perhaps the pandemic was a part of that? I think absolutely the pandemic is a part of it. Um, what we're experiencing is um, a multivariate equation where lots of things are coming together and leading to outcomes that are problematic and really disruptive to our lives. Not only do we have COVID affecting our ability to be fully employed, to be with our friends and with our family, um, and uh, but you've also got everything that happened in 2020 and even earlier than that, that led to a movement to defund police and protests and um, things just kept escalating. So we're dealing with um, the consequences of all of these things right now. So you also attribute the defund the police cries and then some of the protests for social and racial justice. You think all that correlates to the rise in crime as well? Could you take that a little further or, or was I misunderstanding yes. you? I'm going to, okay, take it further. No, no, I, that's, I, I, I believe that is, that is true. Um, because at least in Atlanta, um, and I haven't studied other places, but in Atlanta, um, you know, with the things that happened here, um, and, uh, the police, um, being, um, accused of overstepping, um, you know, good police practices and uh, morale subsequently declining in the in the police force um, and people taking advantage of a relaxation of policing. Mm -hmm. I think that has contributed to some of what we're experiencing right now as well. Buckhead is in zone two, I believe, within the APD zones. And I think you're commander there is a major andrew sensor how would you assess apd's presence in buckhead in general i think that uh, we're very fortunate to have somebody of uh, major sensor's caliber um here in zone two in buckhead um, he's doing a wonderful job leading uh, the force up here and also uh he's very open and engaged with different organizations um who come to uh, him to understand what's going on. And he shares lots of information with us and with others about um, crime mm -hmm. and uh, the police's response to it and uh, the opportunities that we have before it. For listeners who may not be aware, uh, what is the at the core of the focus of the Buckhead Coalition? And has public safety been a part of that? Or is this something new for you all? Um. Yes, so the Bucket Coalition, it's a membership organization of approximately 100 business and civic leaders who have a connection to Buckhead. And in, uh, in July of uh, 2020, when I stepped into this role um, after Mayor Sam Massell stepped down after 32 years of service, mm -hmm. we crafted a mission statement um, that has four pillars. Uh, the first pillar is to advocate on behalf of the community in Buckhead, mm -hmm. uh, in the city of Atlanta and the metropolitan region. 
uh, to support the well-being of Buckhead's residents, its businesses, and visitors to Buckhead, uh, to convene public and private sector leaders and partner organizations, and to connect Buckhead to other areas of the city and the metropolitan region. What other and areas do y'all we wanna... just Go ahead. Yeah, and, and one of the issues that has come up um, has is public safety, and it's on everybody's mind, not only in Buckhead, but around the, the city and uh, beyond. And uh, if you think about those pillars, advocating on behalf of the community, supporting uh, the well-being, con convening leaders to address issues, and then connecting with other areas in the city. It all, it, it all is satisfied with addressing public safety. Mr. Durrett, in a conversation I had with City Council Member Antonio Brown, we talked about the city's overall increase in crime. Uh, take a listen to this. Because the reality is, yeah, you may not have heard about it in Buckhead, but it's been happening on the west side of Atlanta for years. And it's been happening at the same rates it's currently happening now. I just think now that it's spilled over into other communities, it's getting a lot more attention than maybe it was before. Your response to Councilmember Brown, and does he have a valid point? I agree with him. It's, it's absolutely the case. And what we're experiencing in Buckhead is not any different. It's just not been experienced in the past. And a lot of the things that have happened here recently have impacted a lot of people. And, uh, and so uh, because it got the attention of so many people and, uh, and that's what we were hearing from a lot of folks uh, that's why we decided we needed to bring some people together and consider what we could do to be helpful. And so with this safety plan, does this include your own Buckhead security or additional police? I believe like in Midtown they had, was it Midtown Blue, something like that? Is that what you all want? Um, no, not we're, we're not trying to create a separate security force. Okay. What we're trying to do is bring private sector resources to pair with public sector resources and the Atlanta Police Department so that we can help them uh, fill in the gaps where they can use our support. So for instance, we're raising money mm -hmm. um, in the private sector, putting it into a, a pot that's overseen by the Atlanta Police Foundation, by the way. And then we're making investments to hire off-duty Atlanta police officers to provide supplemental patrols we're buying new cameras and license plate readers to install in other parts, not only of Buckhead, but throughout the city of Atlanta to help the police have more eyes on the street because they don't have enough actual eyes uh, to cover the area as well as we'd like them to and making other investments similar to that. And it's all done in partnership with the Atlanta Police Department, managed by the Atlanta Police Department. Y'all going to help get some of that over in the west side and other parts of the town of Atlanta as well that could probably use them? Absolutely. One of the tenants in our security plan says that we are going to invest in all parts of the city. So we're making investments in what, what are called the at promise centers mm -hmm. uh, that the Atlanta Police Department and the Atlanta Police Foundation have stood up around the city. And we are investing in putting um, cameras and license plate readers elsewhere in the city. So it's not just about what can we do for ourselves, but what can we do for the, the larger uh, city. And in that report that I cited coming to the segment, we also talked about, you know, a lack of resources to help those who might be at risk of probably getting in trouble or falling in with the wrong crowd. To and You could say the youth or you could just say it may not be the youth, but you all are also willing to be a part of that solution. Because just be really clear, Mr. Durrett, you and I both know when we have these conversations, because we keep it real here, we have these conversations like this. It comes down to the haves, the have nots. Black, white, what have you, you know that. So you're saying that with this security plan, it is to envelop all of the city for those that want to partner, not just Buckhead, but obviously you're going to have some of this in Buckhead. Is that correct? I just want to make sure I understand you because you're on record. Yes, that, that is. Yes, that is, that is correct. We are raising the money in Buckhead. Anybody can contribute to it. And, uh, and, and the principal reason is to have greater deterrence of crime in Buckhead, but not say we don't care about the rest of Atlanta. 
And that's why it's spelled out in the program, uh, in the plan, here's an investment we intend to make outside of Atlanta. We're also, the coalition is also very interested in reaching out to others and having conversations about what we can do together. The voice you hear is Jim Durrett. He's the president of the Buckhead Coalition, and we're talking about the organization's new Buckhead safety plan. Uh, let's also address this because this seems like this may be a better, could be a better solution than succeeding, which is what some folks wanted to do. I mean, I don't know if Buckhead can succeed from the city, but what do you make of that approach? You're talking about secession from the city of Atlanta? Yes. Um, well, the Bucket Coalition has for a long time had a position that um, Buckhead is part of the city of Atlanta. And Atlanta and its success and its vitality depends on Buckhead's uh, being part of the city, but Buckhead depends upon Atlanta for everything that Atlanta provides. So um, when we first started hearing rumblings about people who were dissatisfied with what they were getting in return for their tax dollars um, and that they were exploring cityhood for Buckhead, um, we came out immediately and said that this was something that we disagreed with. We, and we understand what people's concerns are, and we think it's much more effective to partner up and examine those concerns and see if together we can get them addressed rather than going down this path, which would be divisive mm -hmm. and, uh, and quite frankly, would be nearly impossible to achieve. And uh, so we don't think it's, it's worth the time. Well, let's talk about the money. Uh, how much have you all, first of all, what's the goal and how much have you raised? And who, um, for who mostly is going to be given to it? Right. Well, the bucket security plan is uh, we have a first year budget this year of a little over one point six million dollars and we are approximately halfway there. Um, the bulkhead coalition membership, we have a goal of 100 percent of our members participating at a meaningful level. And uh, we're close to that and hope to wrap that up in the month of March. We're also going out to um, other members of the community, um, being on with you today is a wonderful opportunity for people to hear about this. Um, the uh, members of Atlanta City Council, um, three members have contributed some of their district resources to this. The Atlanta Police Foundation has put money into it. And then different businesses and individuals uh, in Buckhead have all contributed to it. Do you think city council members should take some of their their funding for because uh, you, you consider this to be a public private partnership. So you think that that's OK? I can I can see some others saying, well, you know, let them raise their own money. Can you understand that? Well, city council members have a budget sure. that they can spend if within their district to make improvements for their constituents. And we're targeting those resources to specific areas, mainly to putting cameras and license plate readers in some areas, and also making an investment in the um, youth programs at the At Promise Centers. And we have had the At Promise Center folks on this program. They do a wonderful job over there. Mr. Durrett, what do you want folks to understand? You have this opportunity now. What do you want folks to understand through your lens what this security plan is about and not about? It's about helping the police have a larger presence so that it would deter um, crimes from being committed. We've had lots of, uh, of crime in Buckhead and people are very nervous about that. And so this is really all about putting more police out on the streets, giving them more resources, uh, letting folks that want to uh, be mischievous know that uh, there's a greater chance that they're gonna be caught and uh, people won't have to be so concerned about their safety when they uh, step out of their home or out of their car. And so that's really what this is all about. And it's not about setting up something that's gonna be a long-term investment. Um, this is to close the gap right now at this point in time to help the city address crime in a public-private partnership way. So that's what this is all about. What it's not is the creation of a big private security force that's going to um, 
be there forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, because I don't know anybody that, that welcomes crime in their neighborhood. And I think when all of folks who live within the sound of my voice, when they walk out their door, they want to be safe. So um, Absolutely. That's, that's definitely definitely understandable. So what's the next plan here, uh, Mr. Durrett? Well, um, we want to continue to implement the plan. And uh, so far, we've got three supplemental patrols that are out there right now in the evenings and going into the early mornings. We want to double that this year. Uh, We've got uh, 28 cameras and license plate readers that are going to be installed by May. Mm -hmm. We want to do twice that amount. Um, And uh, we've got other investments that we're making so that's what's happening. Now. And we all make it clear, whomever these folks that you all hire, the extra security, that profiling is a real thing. And to be mindful of that, you and I both know that's an issue. Well, the people that we're hiring are Atlanta Police Department officers who are working extra jobs. But I don't and, always mean uh, anything. Mr. Durrett, you know that. Come on now. <laughs> Rose, um, absolutely true. And, uh, and not just APD, but just any easy. law enforcement. You know, come on, you've been around. Are yes. you going to have a policy to make it sure that there will be some accountability? If, if folks feel like they, there is this profiling, unnecessary profiling or harassment of folks, and you know you know that. So that's why I asked that. You got an opportunity now, so that's why I want you to answer it. There is not going to be any profiling, and um, I'll have a conversation with Major Sensor to make sure that that's clear. But uh, we are going to make sure that we're paying attention to places that have been hot spots for crime in the past. All right. Jim Durrett is the president of the Buckhead Coalition. We'll have a link to this plan on our website. Jim, I want to bring you back, and we want to stay on top of this with you all, because as you said, if it happens in Buckhead or happens on the west side, it affects the entire city. So everybody wants to be a part of the solution from what I hear. So thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you very much, Rose. It's been a pleasure. And let me know what you think about the plan. Give me a send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Yes, rose at wabe.org. That's it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is always produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well as in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like, because it's going to be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Let's all be safe. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 